Sarah lived for 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let's go to God in prayer and ask him for his help. Our Father, we do pray now and we thank you for the opportunity to come together Believers, before your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, use your word to bring about a change within our own hearts and lives. Father, help us not to stand over the word, but to understand it and to submit to it. Lord, use it to convict us of sin. But, Father, also to encourage us in faithfulness. We are needy sheep. We are hungry and thirsty for truth and for life. And so, by your word, feed us, nourish us, and help us, Lord, as a result of this morning's time, to ultimately honor and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 23 marks what is essentially the beginning of the end of the Abrahamic section in Genesis. From here on out, the narrative will dramatically shift toward Isaac. We'll see next week with Isaac's marriage to Rebekah. 
And then right after that, in chapter 25, we have the death of Abraham. But the account we're looking at this morning begins with the death of Sarah. So chapter 23 really focuses in on Abraham's purchase of the land. That's, that's really the main action going on in this chapter. The death of Sarah enshrouds this whole passage. It begins, right? You can see there in verse 1 and 2 with, with her death. And then the chapter ends with that note, look there in verse 19, that Abraham buried Sarah, his wife. So for this reason, we ought to give at least some attention to this. Indeed, look at how verse 2 communicates Abraham's own response to this truth. Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but this is the first and only time we see a recorded instance of Abraham crying in the Bible. We didn't read about him weeping when he left his extended family in Ur to travel to an unknown land. We didn't read about him weeping when his nephew Lot was captured by marauding warlords. And we read no account of him weeping when God told him last week to sacrifice his own son. But here the text is clear. He mourned and he wept for his deceased wife. Makes sense. But take notice, dear church, of the common sorrow we see here in God's people. Even here in the father of all the faithful, Abraham himself, a model of faith held up for us in Scripture. Abraham cried and mourned over the reality of death. There has been, I think, a very modern and an American trend over the past couple of decades where people in the face of death will respond with either a kind of emotionalist stoicism or they try and turn the funeral more into what has often been called a celebration of life. I'm not trying to knock the celebration of life per se. I think that that's good and fine to do. But I am wary of the attitude this often tries to communicate that a funeral should be filled with joy and celebration. The reality is, that's not the model we see throughout Scripture. It's not what we see here, and it's not even how our, our Lord Jesus Christ acted at a funeral where he wept for his deceased friend Lazarus. Uh, Jesus knew, right? He, he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus back up in a couple of minutes, and yet he still honestly weeps. The tears weren't forced or fake. Jesus never faked anything. He legitimately cried over the painful reality, the ugly reality of death. It separates loved ones from us. Death is our great enemy, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. It is a parting and a separation that cannot be reversed in this life. Solomon tells us, doesn't he, in Ecclesiastes, it's better to go to the house of mourning, that is a funeral, than it is to go to a house of feasting and joy. Why? Well, says Solomon, we're brought face to face with the reality of death at a funeral. A reality we all have to face at some point. And the sorrow of that, the the, the reality of the ugliness of that should wake us up to how we're living our lives now. Consider Abraham's mourning here. Sarah was his soulmate. She died at the age, we see in verse 1, of 127 years, which means that she and Abraham were probably married for over 100 years. 
And for 62 of those years, Sarah had unflinchingly followed her husband into the unknown as they left the only country and family they knew in Ur and traveled to an unknown land. Abraham said God had promised to him. She was there when Abraham went off to war against the kings of the north, praying, no doubt, for his safe return. She was there when God made his covenant promise to give them a land and to make them a prosperous people. She faithfully waited decades for the promise of a child to come. Of course, she was there when Abraham asked her to lie twice and say she was his sister, both to the king of Egypt and to the king of Gerar, taking her away so that uh, they both kind of try to make her uh, their wives. After each of these, though, she still followed and stuck by Abraham. She stuck by Abraham throughout that whole affair with Hagar and Ishmael. Think about it, for over a century, Abraham would have ended each day by crawling into bed next to his queen, Sarah. She was his confidant, his soulmate, his bride, for over a century, his beloved. As when Sarah died, Abraham wept tears of sorrow, mourning the loss of his wife. Don't we need to be reminded of these kinds of things, that death brings sorrow, and it's a normal part of our Christian experience to weep for those we've lost. Mourning over close friends and family that have died is not only permitted, but friends, according to Scripture, it's expected. Indeed, I would say not to mourn would be a great failure. But of course, to to mourn indefinitely, right? To, To keep on mourning and to continue to mourn without hope, that'd be equally as bad. We, we mourn, but life goes on. God is still God. There is the reality of a resurrection. We mourn, but then we, we get back up. And we get on with the business of living. And apparently that's exactly what Abraham does. Look there in verse 3. So Abraham rose up from before his dead. He goes to the Hittites and he says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. I think it's fair to say that in this moment, Abraham became acutely aware that what God had promised, namely an inheritance of the land, was as of yet unfulfilled. Abraham no place to call his own in which he could bury his beloved bride. And so what does he do? Well, he acts. He acts on what God had promised, and he, he seeks to buy a plot of land. And I, I just want to note here the, the compatibility, at least in Abraham's mind, that God's sovereign purposes are not opposed to our responsibility and actions. You see what Abraham didn't do? He didn't do and say, well, you know, God promised me land. I, I don't own any land yet, so I, I guess I'll just keep on waiting. I think what we're seeing here is Abraham taking action motivated out of God's sovereign promise. And perhaps as he knelt down in mourning beside his deceased wife and and he, he wept over the thought that she was now no longer going to be there to see the promised land that God had actually promised to them, perhaps then he heard the echoes of God's promises ringing in the back of his mind. Genesis 12, 7, To your offspring, Abraham, I will give this land. Or perhaps Genesis 13, 15. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Genesis 15, 18. 
To your offspring, Abraham, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Or again, Genesis 17, 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Well, there had to be no doubt in Abraham's mind that the land would be his. So what did he do? He acted. In faith, he got up and he went out to purchase a plot of land. Notice how the Hittites were quick to answer there in verse 5. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. They're respectful, right? But it, it feels a bit like flattery, doesn't it? I think they're beginning to engage in this game of bargaining. They, they, they know they can make some money off of Abraham, and, and so all the niceties come up. Oh, Prince of God, whichever one you want. The flattery is laid on thick. But it's interesting, I think, that they do call him a prince of God. Here are pagan Canaanites, men who worshipped a multitude of of false gods, false idols, but they're giving acknowledgement to the one true God and saying that Abraham is that God's vice regent, his prince, which was actually very true. And so whether they knew it or not, whether they meant it or not, what they said was true. He was indeed a prince of God. But notice, notice how Abraham described himself in verse 4. The Hittites viewed Abraham as a mighty prince, a, a prince of God. But Abraham saw himself as a stranger and a sojourner. The Hebrew word for stranger meant somebody who had no legal rights within the land. A sojourner was only somebody who had temporary residence. They had no legal right to remain long in the land. I wonder what does this have to do with us? I think this. We ought to have the same view of ourselves as Abraham had of himself in verse 4. What's fascinating is that the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11... He he uses this same description. He he actually, he reads his Greek translation of the Old Testament and he picks up on this verse in Genesis 23 and Peter uses the verse to describe us as Christians. So in 1 Peter 2.11, he applies this passage to us by saying that the way we should view ourselves in the world is as an alien. We, We don't belong here. We're temporary residents. We stand out because we're strangers in this world. Listen to how Peter applies it to us. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There he's picking up in Genesis 23. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God? Do you see? Peter is looking at an example of Abraham, and he's applying it to us, and and he's saying that in this fallen world where we live now, we need to be like Abraham, just as distinctive. We need to stand out. It's no surprise that the world hates Christians, says Peter. They have and they always will think we are evildoers. That's the word Peter uses. 
That is, there will always be significant pockets of people in the world who will always think that we are backward in our thinking, that, that, that we're narrow-minded or, or bigoted, that we stand against personal freedom and the autonomy of self, never letting people live how they want. What Peter is saying here is he's saying, look, the world doesn't really want Christians around. So what should we do? He says, one, we should, we should live differently than the surrounding world. Abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul, says Peter. We need to make sure we're not living ungodly lives in an ungodly world. Your witness won't amount to a hill of beans if how you live looks no different than the pagans and unbelievers around you. But secondly, he says, live such exemplary lives that however many charges the world would bring against you, at least the quality of your lives will begin to change opinions. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. In other words, act upright and engage your neighbors. Even if and even when they despise you, engage them with dignity and respect. They may see your good deeds and come to glorify God. I think this is what it means to live as strangers and sojourners in the world. And, and look again at Genesis 23. Isn't, isn't this how Abraham deals with the Hittites? Look there at verse 7. Abraham rose and he bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. Look at the honor that he shows them. He, he treats them with dignity. And he said to them, verse 8, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. And it's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a, as a property for a burying place. You see here how Abraham is not only courteous, esteeming others as better than himself, but he's also just, right? He's conducting business here with an eye towards honesty and doing what's right. Do you see that? The Hittite, back in verses 5 and 6, well, they, they outright offered Abraham a burial plot as a gift. But here in verses 7 through 9, Abraham, he refuses that gift. And, and he entreats a certain man, the man by the name of Ephron, so that, so that he can legally and rightly buy a field. I think Abraham is aware here of a couple of things. Had he taken a burial plot as a mere gift, I think he would have no doubt always been under the thumb of these Hittites. Sure, they, they praised Abraham now with their lips, but surely a time would come when this bargain would bring unending trouble for Abraham and his lineage. Would the land always be available for burying his dead? Would the Hittites eventually look down upon Abraham for having cheated them and taken advantage of them? You got that land for nothing? That's not fair. Now, Abraham, he wanted to buy the cave outright. Let's do this legally and fairly, he says in verse 9. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence. So we, we see Ephron now enter into the bargaining spotlight, verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city. Verse 11, No, my Lord, hear me. 
I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Notice the emphasis here on doing this deal in front of everyone. Did you see that? The, the deal is, is emphasized in being done in plain sight. Remember, this is what Abraham requested in verse 9. Let Ephron give it to me in your presence. What's going on here? I think, in essence, Abraham is being prudent. In, in a day and an age where there were no official written deeds or records, remember, paper as we know it probably was not even invented yet, uh, public witness had to serve as the effect of a solid contract. Abraham is making sure that no one could ever come back later and say the cave he was buying wasn't really his. No, it, it was, and everyone saw the purchase take place. But did you notice how Ephron is just as shrewd in his bargaining? There's a little bit of extortion going on here in verse 11, isn't there? All Abraham wanted was what? The cave. But what does Ephron add? The field with all the trees in it and everything else. Do you see that? In Ephron's mind, more real estate probably meant more money. Perhaps he expected Abraham to push back a bit and protest. Hold on there, Ephron. I just wanted the cave. What does Abraham do instead in verses 12 and 13? Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, Hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Abraham says, Okay, what's your asking price? Ephron responds, verse 15. My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Go ahead, bury your dead. Now, if Abraham wanted, I I think at this point, he could have very rightly responded to Ephron's question, what is 400 shekels between me and you with, wait, what, 400 shekels? That's a lot between me and you, Ephron. Uh, 400 shekels of silver was about six and a quarter pounds of silver. That's an exorbitant price in any time. Ephron likely anticipated that Abraham would bow again and then, and then make a counteroffer. But notice, Abraham doesn't push back at all. Verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights, current among the merchants. This is wild to me. This is not how bargaining works, right? I just spent a couple weeks in the Philippines. Everything is bargained for. They give a price. You say, ah, I'm walking away. Ah, no, come back, come back. And you give a low price, and then they give a, a little bit lower price. And then you, you work your way to some kind of healthy, agreed-upon middle, right? But Abraham doesn't play that game at all. And in light of such a high price, 400 shekels of silver, it's striking, it should be striking, that Abraham just says, okay, I'll buy it. I just wanted the cave, but I'll take the cave and the land. Here's your money. It's almost as if Abraham is aware that all the blessings he's received thus far from God, all the material blessings of wealth which Abraham has accrued during his time in Canaan, as you read through Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you see just this wealth that he accumulates. 
All that time was meant in Abraham's mind. He's getting it to be used now in purchasing that first plot of land. And so in this way, in the sight of all the people of the land, Abraham became the rightful owner of land in Canaan. Verse 17 the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. We've got to ask the question, don't we? Why does Moses, the, the author here of Genesis, why does Moses spend so much time unpacking what seems to be superfluous details regarding the purchase of this land. Why are you spilling so much ink, Moses, about this transaction? Who cares? And the answer comes in this repeated theme, this this all-controlling melodic line we see throughout the chapter. Look there in verse 2. We read that Sarah died in Hebron in the land of Canaan. That phrase, in the land, is repeated throughout and then it even ends the text in verse 19 that Sarah was buried in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. You can see, can't you, the emphasis upon the land? The land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants? Four times throughout the text, verse 4, verse 9, verse 18, and verse 20, four times like a pounding rhythm, giving tempo to this emphasis, we see Abraham speak of now owning the land as his property and possession. The point then of this passage is this. What God had promised is now, even if in a small way, is now being fulfilled. Abraham is tasting the inaugurated fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And even though it's not the fullness of the land, nevertheless, what we see here is God's faithfulness. This is how God works in the lives of his people, is it not? He works in degrees. God calls us to be faithful with a little. God shows us that he too is faithful in a little. He brings about his promises in our lives one small step at a time. Think about it. In our forgiveness of sin, we're promised as Christians, we're promised to be free from the power of sin. We're promised the power to live holy lives. Indeed, there will come a time that the gospel promises where we will in glory sin no more, totally free from the power of sin and temptation. But right now, right now we enjoy that promise in small degrees. Little victories here and there. We don't become sinless when we come to Christ. But what happens over time, step by step, year after year, decade after decade, we find ourselves that we begin to sin less and less. And those small victories, those times where we're able to say no, what we usually ran after and dove into, those small victories should encourage